So we're closing out a series which we've done for the last couple months, looking at the villains of Scripture, and I'm just thankful for the, the positive feedback you all have given me on this series. It's been fun to preach through some of these characters, because oftentimes we like to think of ourselves in comparison to the, the heroes, the, the big characters in the Bible, though the heroes of Scripture really aren't that heroic when you actually look at their lives. But it's been fun and interesting for me, and I hope for you as well, to think about some of the villains in Scripture. And as I was working through this series, I had some preaching buddies who uh, we worked together writing this series and uh, working through it together. And this is one of the first ones that, that came to mind, and that's Judas. Because how could you not preach a series on, uh, how could you preach a series on the villains of Scripture and not bring up Judas? Because Judas is kind of a big one. I mean, he's a very infamous one. If you aren't familiar with the story of Judas, he is one of Jesus's disciples in his posse and his crew, and he ends up turning Jesus over to death in this horrific act of betrayal. But as I was thinking about him and, and his character, something came to mind. I think we don't really think about all that often. I'd love for you to maybe talk to the person next to you or online, just share what your thoughts are. Why does Judas turn Jesus over? So talk to somebody new. Why does Judas turns Jesus over. Because if you really think about it, I don't know that we know the answer. And it's not necessarily all that clear. So in John chapter 18, we, we read this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So Judas knows where Jesus would often go to meet with his disciples. And because of that inside information, he, he has these people coming and they are there to arrest Jesus. And I have to think that that detail is just so hard for Jesus to take. Jesus has taught about love and forgiveness and grace in the nonviolent way. You know, someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. And Judas arrives with a group of soldiers. They're carrying weapons. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had said this, Now this is my command, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus has just said this, and just a few chapters later, Judas shows up with a bunch of people with weapons. And I have to say that in this moment, I think of betrayal in my life. And perhaps you haven't lived long enough to experience betrayal from someone that's really close to you. And if you haven't, awesome. But I imagine that at some point in your life, you're going to experience the betrayal of someone who's close to you. Perhaps someone who is a really close friend. Perhaps someone who you've lived a lot of life with. And you would think, there's no way, there's no way he would do that to me, or no way she would do that. But in life, there's going to be some painful moments for all of us as it comes to friends and people who are close to us. And one part of this story that I believe is comforting is if you have experienced that, if you currently are experiencing that, just know that Jesus has too. Just imagine Judas showing up in this moment. 
after Jesus has literally just said, laying down your life for one's friends is the way that your life is going to be measured. This is how this matters. This is the way, the pattern that Jesus has given for all of us. And I think when we read that, we take it to its like radical extreme, you know, laying down my life for somebody and you think, wow, like, who is it that I would die for? And you think, yeah, maybe I'd, I'd die for you know, him, but I certainly wouldn't die for him. I'm not pointing at anybody in here, don't worry. <laughs> uh, you kind of you go, go down that, that list of like, who is it, who is it that you know, I love so much? Yeah, Simon, you're on my list for sure. Uh, like, <laughs> who is it that, 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 I, that I love so much that I would be willing to do and, and go to this extreme? And perhaps in your life, like, you really will perhaps like, be called to do that for somebody. But oftentimes we think about it just in this wild, extreme tense. And I think sometimes we need to think about how it's just like in the day-to-day. Like being willing to stop and recognize somebody else in your world, in your life. The, the, the stats about Americans and friendship, honestly, are very troubling. I read that 65% of Americans haven't made a new friend in the last five years. The numbers over the last 30 to 40 years of decline of intimate like friendships is staggering. People don't stop and make time for each other anymore. It's not just like a problem out there. Like we don't do a good job of stopping. And again, it's not just like, man, would I die for that person? Though perhaps that might be a question that's asked one day, but just in your day to day, how are you laying down your life? I saw this story just a few weeks ago, and I thought it was, this was a perfect illustration of how a couple guys just very simply lived this out. So, Chen, if you could roll that video for us. High fives for friendship are front and center in this week's offering from Steve Hartman. Every week, Andy Gullahorn goes for a walk. And every week, about a mile and a half away, his friend Gabe Scott does the same thing at the same time. They walk toward each other, and when they meet, it's the weirdest thing. You see that? Clap, snap, high five. Then, often, they simply walk home. The whole exercise, their way of saying hi. You realize people have telephones, and you can just call your buddy. You're right, we should have been doing that this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and pick up the phone is great, but I've got a friend who literally will walk through the rain and the snow just to give me a high five, and I wish everybody could feel that feeling. Andy and Gabe are musicians in Nashville. They met at a concert in 2000 and became friends. They got together on occasion, but not as often as they would have liked. So they invented this bit of silliness seven years ago as a way of guaranteeing they see each other at least once a week. So this is the High Five Journal. Andy has a log of every encounter, including the one that was nearly their last. It was High Five number 312. Gabe was hospitalized with a severe form of encephalitis. It caused his brain to swell and robbed him of his past. I pretty much forgot my life. Your whole life? Yeah. And that's when his buddy Andy, now a virtual stranger, came to visit. I said, well, Gabe, this is going to sound really weird, but I need you to do something for me. Give me a high five. And he was like, okay. When the moment happened, my body just did what it's been doing for years. <laughs> Clap. Snap, high five. That was in September. Since then, a lot of his memories have returned, but few more cherished than this silly tradition, which doesn't seem quite so silly anymore. It's really special to have something, have a memory of something, to have something that's this consistent in my life. That means this much. 
Andy even wrote a song about their ritual. So take a walk with me on Monday morning. It's a reminder that going out of your way for someone is still the straightest path to an everlasting friendship. No when small things matter, it's really no small thing. Thank you very much. So yeah, everybody needs to find a high five buddy by the end of service today. <laughs> And of course, it doesn't have to be that ritual or that act that you do, but that kind of stuff, it matters. It adds up. And again, it's not just like, you know, who would I die for? Though, of course, perhaps that, that might be a question that you have to answer, but who is it that you're laying down your life for? I think of how many of us grew up. It was across denom denominations. Many of us grew up going on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night to church. And, and some of those were a grind. You had like the, the B team for Wednesday night church, and it was just not all that, that great of a sermon. And as a preacher, I have to say, like, praise God, I don't have to do all that. Because that was a whole lot of work. I'm really thankful that I get to really hone in on uh, preparing one sermon and then doing small group ministries outside of that. So I'm, I'm thankful that I don't have to do that. But I think we've lost a lot of our rituals in our world today, the times where we showed up for each other. And we've lost the ways that we just need to lay down our lives a bit. So that's a part of what it means to be following Jesus. But unfortunately, Judas isn't on that correct path. For whatever reason, he determines that the best thing for his way forward is to betray Jesus. So Luke chapter 22 tells us of this climactic scene. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. And again, the question that I want us to think about is, why does Judas do this? And I think many of us, including myself, before doing some research and really thinking about that question, is I would have answered for the money. Because like, he receives an amount of money. It's 30 silver pieces that he receives for betraying Jesus. But if you look up and really research exactly what he got, it's unclear what denomination of money this is. And so there's a little bit of a wide range of outcomes of what people say the amount of money was. Some say that it's around $200 in today's money, around $200 that Judas does this. Some say that it goes all the way up to around 4,000. So that is a bit of, of a wide range. But either way, whether it's 200 or 4,000 like in today's money, that's a, it could be a little bit of a significant sum. But think about like what you would do for certain amounts of money. I always think of a conversation Mandy reminds me of from time to time. I was with uh, my friend, and we called her, and we said, oh, how much money would it take for you to sleep in a um, bathtub full of tapioca pudding? And she's like, what are you guys doing? And, uh, and she gave her answer, which was pay off my school loans, um, which was pretty significant amount of money at that time. And she's like, well, what was your answer? And I said, 500 bucks? Like, I didn't... <laughs> And I still probably would do that. I know I wouldn't sleep very much, and it sounds horrific. It would be a really long night, but yeah, 500 bucks, I'd, I'd probably, probably do that. And we all have a certain price that we'd pay. And as you think about that range, you know, $200 perhaps that Judas got up to 4000 Like a lot of y'all would do some pretty shady stuff for $4,000 maybe. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But 
like, of course, this is a different range, like $200 to $4,000, that, that's pretty significant. But even at that high end, if it's $4,000, I still would argue, I don't think Judas does it for the money. Because it's not like he gets that money and then he just, you know, goes off to live on the beach somewhere and like, all right, that's exactly what I needed to retire. Like, I'm done. I funded my 401k fully. Or like, I paid off a debt. Like, okay, I had to have that money. I was really desperate for the money. And so once I got it, I just got to like go take care of whatever it is that I wanted to take care of. Judas doesn't do that. In fact, as you continue on understanding this story, you see that eventually he just throws that money back. I mean, he's, it's in a moment of shame, but I, I think the money in the end just doesn't really matter. It's not his motivation. So there are somewhat two schools of thought as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. And it's kind of some of the opposite sides of the same coin. Some people speculate that Judas finally gets it. Like the disciples have been hearing Jesus say, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die. I'm going to die for like the entire ministry. And Judas finally goes, hey, wait, I think he's actually like actually going to do it. And so he becomes disillusioned because the Jews had hopes that a Messiah would come and sit on a throne of power and set up a new kingdom of Israel and the new Messiah would be just like the old King David. And like that was going to, to change the world. And so the disciples followed up until that point because they believed that Jesus was going to set up this, this throne of power. And so once Judas finally gets this moment of like clarity and goes, wait, he's not going to be who I think he's going to be. Judas just says, I don't want to be part of this at all. And then there's some scholars who speculate on the other side that Judas is still confident that Jesus is going to take over this throne by power and force. And eventually he's going to like sit on this seat and eventually, you know, he's going to be on the right and Peter's going to be on the left or whatever it is. They're going to get these seats of power. So Judas decides, I'm going to turn this over. I'm going to turn him over so we can get this party started. I'm kind of tired of talking about this. Like, let's just get this going. And so come on, like soldiers, come get him. And then Jesus Go, go do your thing. So on either side, and we're not sure exactly why, and perhaps it's not even either of those motivations, but as you really think about it, it's one of those questions, like why is it that Judas does it? And either side of the scholarly debate on which one it might be, I think it comes down to the fact that Jesus isn't who Judas wanted him to be that he had some sort of expectations for Jesus, and he, at this point, is just not living up to them. And he had these ways of thinking about what God was going to do in the world, and finally, he's just like, I'm just not in this anymore. And God, you're not fitting into my box. You're not doing the things that I would expect, and so I just don't want to be part of this anymore. Matthew 27 tells us this, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself is he realizes the weight of what he's done. He just can't deal with it. And this, I believe, is why. 
we have to take this story seriously. And to understand that if we are trying to force God or Jesus to be who we want him to be on our terms, there's going to be a point when God simply isn't big enough for us. When we force God to be the thing that we want or the thing that we want to lean on or exactly just like signing off on exactly the things that we want to do, there's going to be a point when you realize that God's just simply not big enough for you or for me. I was reading this week and I came across this, which I thought uh, was, was pretty unbelievable, about the number of questions that Jesus asks. If you could go to that slide for me, Lindsay. Jesus asks many more questions than he answers. He asks 307 questions. He's asked 183. He only answers three. Doesn't that make you mad? Like when you read it? <laughs> How have we built a religion of certainty based on this? Like, seriously. I think if we were to go to Jesus with like a modern problem, all right, Jesus, tell me, like, predestination or free will? Jesus would say, ah, oh, there was a man in a field one day. <laughs> and you'd be like, no, 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 no. Or he would contextualize because we aren't farmers. He'd go, there was once a person who had a TikTok account. And you'd be like, no, 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 no. Just... Four words or less, like, you know, give, give me the answer. Like, give me the answer. And Jesus would just, like, look off in the distance and say, I'm not really going to answer your question. Let me just give you another question. And I think when you actually like, really take seriously who Jesus is and what he was about, and he's asking way more questions than he's getting asked, and he's only willing to answer three, like, we need to recognize that, that God is way bigger and more complex than we could possibly imagine or understand. And at times, what we can do, and if you're not a religious person, I'm so glad that you're watching this or that you're part of this conversation, but if you are a religious person, it's so easy for us to just start to think, all right, you know, I can, I can show up to church and put God into this box, or I can, I can participate in this thing, and then God kind of becomes what I want God to be. There's going to be a point in your life and my life when we need a much bigger God than that. And so for Judas, I think he has this moment. And unfortunately, his God's just not big enough. When he does this horrible thing and he realizes just how, how shameful and sinful and sad it is, he just is overwhelmed. And I think there's going to be a time like that for all of us. When we recognize, I really screwed this up. And at that moment, are you going to be leaning into the power and grace of a God that is way bigger than you could ever ask or imagine? When you come face to face, perhaps, and in a powerful way with, with your brokenness and the things that perhaps you have participated in, in the world, are you going to be able to say, yeah, I, I screwed that up, but I believe that the grace of God is big enough for me? And that's ultimately Judas's downfall. Because you think about all the things that he saw. He saw 
Jesus heal lepers? People who were like outside of society. He saw Jesus hang out with prostitutes and not be nervous around them. He saw Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners, which I always find hilarious that the tax collectors and sinners are are listed separately. It's like the sinners are like, I don't even want to be associated with you guys. Jesus hung out with the worst of the worst in that society, in that place, and was just so comfortable and loving. And Judas actually saw it with his own eyes, and yet he didn't believe it was for him. At the moment when he needed it the most, he didn't believe it was for him. Do you believe that the grace of God isn't just something that like really desperate people need? Do you recognize the desperation in yourself? Do you recognize that we all need a really big God? A God whose grace is for cheaters and backstabbers and liars and gossips. You recognize that we have deep need for the grace of God because the love of God changes everything, including you and me. And when you come face to face with your brokenness or you are at your lowest point, I hope that in that moment, you will lean into the big, complex nature of God, a God who is mysterious and yet there for you. I read a story this week about a guy named John Cavanaugh, who was an author, and he was at the middle of his life, and he decided that he wanted to figure out what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. So he thought a really good person to have that conversation with would be Mother Teresa. And so he went and spent three months with Mother Teresa. And on the first day he was there, uh, she came up and talked to him and said, hey, uh, can I pray for you as you're here and spending this time here? And he said, yes, I, I would love that. Can you please pray that I would have clarity about the like, last half of my life? Like, what am I supposed to do with it? And Mother Teresa laughed. And she said, no, I won't pray for you for that. And he said, what? Again, this is a, maybe a Jesus-like person who would just laugh at us sometimes when we want to ask uh, that question. And he said, no, no, no. She said, no, I won't pray for you for that. And he said, well, well, why not? And she said, clarity is the last idol that you need to give up before you are, are transformed into who God wants you to be. And he was very frustrated by this answer. And he said, but you've had clarity and you've had purpose. And she said, nope, I don't feel like I've had clarity or purpose for a day in my life. But what I have had is trust. So every day, I try to trust God more and more. And then I believe if I trust God more and more every single day, then I'm going to end up more and more who God wants me to be. And that, I believe, is why we need a big God a God that we can trust, a God that we can turn our lives and our ambitions over to, 
And may we not be like Judas for whatever reason. He just wants to force Jesus. Jesus hasn't lived into his expectations of who he thinks Jesus should be. And so he decides to do something desperate. But even after he does this, there would be grace for him if he could accept it. Just as Peter does. You see the life and ministry of Peter who Jesus says to Peter, you will betray me three times before the end of this night. And Peter's like, no, 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 I won't. And then he goes and he does it. But he is redeemed and restored, not because of himself, but because of who he believes Jesus is. And Peter is the cornerstone of the church that Jesus talks about because he leans into that reality. May we understand that God is worthy of our trust, and that God is big enough to understand our own sin and brokenness.